0: Become very, very scattered. We have many, many tens of thousands, perhaps, of independents out there who are doing nothing or who are trying to obey God out on their own. We have many, many groups. I've seen upwards of uh, 40 organized groups uh, listed and a few larger organizations. Many, many of these people, as occurs in families when there are Uh, scatterings and diversities of opinions are bickering and fighting among themselves we have sheep wars going on between different groups trying to proselyte from each other some say we're better than you are and the others saying no we're better than you are. Sounds sort of like uh, the two that came to Christ and said can we sit on the right hand and the left hand uh, in your kingdom and he said I can't give that to you but look what happened to the others Two try to set themselves up as a little better, or a lot better perhaps in their minds, and then the rest argue and fought with them. And we have much that same scenario occurring today. What is going to happen here, brethren? It seems like every day, every week, every month, every year that goes by, God's people are weakened more. Their power is shattered, scattered, depending on the translation that Daniel says. And we become more and more, it seems, disunified. Even those who find a new church home, perhaps, in another group, then become dissatisfied and confused in that group and move to another group. So they have a floating population of sheep that wander from flock to flock and don't seem to be being fed, don't seem to be being healed, the broken, uh, picked up and helped. The lost are just left out there and no man seeks them, as Christ said in one place. Uh, I have heard some estimate that uh, perhaps 50% or more of God's people will be losing their eternal salvation by going into the tribulation. That they will not repent and lose out on salvation after having gone in there if they aren't part of perhaps one of the better groups that escapes that. But the indication that I have heard is that most will go into the tribulation and will not come out of it alive. Some will die in martyrdom for God and save their eternal life but perhaps lose much of their reward according to this theory and others will simply lose it altogether. Does that square with what you read in the Bible? What about Jesus Christ? Is he sovereign or is he not? What did he say to his father when he went back? I have lost none save the son of perdition. And that one was planned all along. He knew who he was and what he would do. So none were lost except that which was planned. What about Romans eleven twenty six? 26, I think it is, It says all Israel shall be saved. Israel, or the church, is the Israel of God, as we know. So the type and symbology of the church is there along with that of the nation, the duality and prophecy. So if Christ says all Israel, or, all the church basically shall be saved, where does that leave that kind of theory? I think it leaves it in trying to interpret some things that maybe are not being interpreted correctly, because I believe, that that Jesus Christ is sovereign, and I believe he will save this church. He is not effete. He is not effeminate. He is a consuming fire. Where did the unity go? What happened? Did God allow this? And what way did he allow it? We were unified under Mr. Armstrong in a spirit of grace and unity and harmony, and that disappeared when foxes and wolves began to trample on Zion and to eat the tender grapes, as we read in Song of Solomon's in Lamentations 5.18 and the grievous wolves in Acts 20.29. 20, I won't go to those scriptures for sake of time, but we all know what has occurred. Will we have unity again? And if we do, how will it occur? Well, I mean, in this age, before Christ returns. I want to pick this up just briefly in Haggai 2, because there's an interesting verse in here in relation to the days of Unleavened Bread and where we are right now. Haggai 2, and verse 5, well, let's see. Let's pick it up in verse, part of verse 4. Joshua, the son of Josedeck, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Fear you not. And yet we are concerned. We're a little confused. We're a little frustrated by what we see and the wash of disunity that goes back and forth across the church? Let's go back and review for a moment in Exodus 19, <laughs> but we did covenant with God, and see where we take it from there. Let's pick it up in Exodus 19, verse 4. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. He completely destroyed, as John was saying the other day, the Egyptian empire, and how I bear you out on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. They walked on eagle's wings. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed, there are conditions to what Christ is going to do. That's what a covenant is all about. It has conditions. Then you shall be a particular treasure to me above all people. And remember here in the duality we're speaking of the church, not just of the nation. That will be important as we go on through this sermon. For all the earth is mine, he is sovereign, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. Remember the ones we've gone back to over and over? Revelation 5, 10, I think it is, or 10, 5, I got it backwards. Uh, how we will be kings and priests. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before their faces all these words which the Lord commanded him and all the people answered together and said all that the Lord has spoken we will do I won't go through all the covenant because you have to go through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and read all the statutes, the judgments, the laws and everything God set down as conditions before them of blessing and cursing and so on and so forth in detail and we're familiar with that But I wanted to come back and review this covenant we made with God, that we will obey him, that our lives become his, and we've gone through, they went through the Red Sea and were baptized in it just as we have been baptized, and we gave our lives completely and totally to God. He became that sacrifice for us as we just rehearsed at Passover, and now we are putting sin out of our lives and bringing ourselves to greater obedience that he might choose us as a particular nation, a particular church, a particular people, and that we will become a holy nation and a priesthood to him to help rule in his kingdom forever and ever. That's the covenant that we have made. Are we ready for this as we near the end of this age? I don't have time to go through all the prophecies about what is about to happen to this country and to this world, but we all know it begins with trouble and ends in Armageddon. And that unless it were cut short, short, not one person would be left alive. This is what we're going into. Are we ready for it? Are we ready for torture? Are we ready for death for those who might go into tribulation? I don't know whether you can ever say you're ready or not. Are we preparing ourselves by doing the little things day by day to show that we will be faithful in the big things that are just over the horizon? I say over, I think we can see them on the horizon now. They're coming our way, and we'll see that a little later on. So here is the covenant we made, obedience to death before God, and he said, fear not, he would be a cloud and a pillar. What does that do? It gives us guidance, it gives us direction, where and when to go. And I think it's important we consider that in this sermon because they left and went to safety out of Egypt. We are departing out of sin and going to safety sooner or later. And probably fairly soon, I think, based on what we see happening in the leaves coming on the trees. Within a year or two or three, I would guess, I don't see how it could go beyond. Maybe shorter, maybe a little longer, but not very far away. Will we be unified? How can we get together? We don't have much strength, do we? Each little group just doesn't have much strength. I want to draw a picture of how unity will indeed come from God. That we might not murmur or fret or worry or forget that God is in charge. We're now in a famine of the word. Where is God? We have Humpty Dumpty laying before us the overall church of God I think you could say it's all broken in pieces all the king's horses and all the king's men can't put it together again unless you turn to the king of kings and he can't and he will I think we'll see that so remember I'm drawing a picture uh, drawing a picture of the future and drawing a picture of the past are similar you have to put the pieces together the scriptures here and there and form a picture of how God might do something I may not get every detail correct but I think we can see a picture of what God is doing and how he will do it. Now, this may be an unusual approach, but I want to tell you what I'm going to tell you first. And I think it's easier than trying to piece this together because many of the scriptures overlap and you'll see two or three points in one scripture, so it's best just to tell you where I'm going first. And then it'll be easier for you to put it together. And here's how unity then will come in my view, and I hope that this is the view that I've taken from the Bible and not Darrow's view. It will come through the two witnesses of God. There will be a flight in a time of calm. People have wondered about this. There have been two theories basically in the church over the many, many years. And one is that it would take a great deal of faith to flee because trouble would not yet be here. It would be a time of uh, basic prosperity and so on. Uh, All the bombs haven't dropped yet. So it would take faith to say, okay, I'll just leave everything and go when someone that we look to as an authoritarian figure says God told me I don't know what the independents do maybe God tells each one Uh, but that shall remain to be seen then I have heard the other theory that uh, Matthew 24 indicates that before you ever get down into the context to the place where it says flee that there comes the fifth seal and martyrdom and death and destruction and persecution and uh, fighting among ourselves and then a flight would come Which is it? I think it's both. I think there will be a flight that occurs before things get too bad, and the flight will occur later when it's really, really bad. And I think we can show this scripturally. And it's going to be through the two witnesses who are the ones that God will use to unify the church, because right now no one will listen to anyone, basically. And even those who are in a group still have their own opinions and feelings and many of them will not commit to follow a leader because they're not quite sure of the leadership. Now, that's all at the door of the leadership to a great degree. You read Ezekiel 33 and 34, and you'll see that. You're familiar with it. and Probably we've all read it many times in the last few years when we were beginning to decide whether to break off or not, and we were being stomped and kicked into the mud and fleeced and eaten on by the ministry. And yet God, there toward the end of that context, says, I will appoint one shepherd over them all, And he talks about David, and I think we will see that there will be a type of David come along before the real David is resurrected and gathers all Israel as a nation from around the world, but that there will be a type of David that will help gather the church together. Because unless you hear the voice of one shepherd, one which you can see clearly is designated by God, then how will you know which voice to follow? Because there are so many voices to follow today. I didn't well maybe I said that wrong. There's so many voices, I don't know that there's that many to follow. Because there are thousands of voices. But we have to see something that from the scripture we can capture and hold on to. Who else would it be? Would it be someone who claims he has all the truth? claims he's right about all these peripheral issues that have become so divisive like the calendar and Pentecost and uh, on and on it goes the moons how do we know which one's right? Some of these are very technical things maybe it cannot be unified until God shows by the ways he has of doing it that here is one, actually two but one being the leader (coughs) and there's no other place to go and we're going to see that there is no other way brethren whereby we can be unified except there we'll see that scripturally now let's keep in mind this duality which I've already covered uh, but I want to add a little bit to it The, the church is the Israel of God all the tribes of Israel so when you read the Uh, prophecies you will find Israel mentioned Judah mentioned Jerusalem mentioned all the different tribes mentioned and this sort of washes back and forth there's duality between the church and the nation very obviously but in some cases it seems to be a little stronger toward the nation sometimes it seems to be a little stronger towards the church they may all apply both ways but there seems to be a strength one way or the other and as you get to the smaller unit of government, you get, uh, you narrow your focus. In other words, if you speak of Israel of God, you're speaking of the entire church. That would include uh, every independent, every group, every part who was ever converted. It might even include those in South America and uh, uh, in Russia, various places, where there are little groups that had the Sabbath and maybe the Holy Days that God considers part of a fold that's not of this flock. I don't know just how wide it goes. But when it says Israel, then that would be the entire church, the Israel of God. When it talks about one particular tribe, the focus is narrowed a bit. When it talks about Jerusalem, that was basically the governmental structure or the headquarters. Jerusalem. When it speaks of Zion, it narrows it down even more because Zion was the Mount of Zion within Jerusalem. And Christ is coming to Mount Zion. So when it focuses down to Zion, it's speaking of a much smaller group within the Church of God, which Christ defines as the apple of his eye in Zechariah and in the Song of Songs and perhaps in other places. And we would all, each of us, I think, individually hope to be in this group. Perhaps it comprises the Bride of Christ, or maybe it plus Jerusalem comprises the Bride of Christ. I don't know where the where the Bride ends and... Uh, those who are guests at the wedding supper and so on fit in for sure. Something to think about. But don't we all want to be as close to the center as we can? Would you rather just be part of Israel or would you rather be part of Zion? And we'll see in some prophecies in Isaiah today that it speaks a great deal about Zion. It brings in the other tribes and the whole as well. But a lot of it is to Zion. And I would hope that I could be part of Zion and I hope that each of you can be part of Zion. And I wish that everyone could be because I would wish that we would all obey God so fiercely, so diligently, that He would just have to include us as part of that specific body that is Zion. So understand how it focuses down as it gets into a smaller group. Now let's go to Zechariah 11. Zechariah 11 because it here tells us what has occurred. Uh, Let's pick it up in verse 3. I don't want to spend a great deal of time here, but there is a voice of the howling of the shepherds. And have we not heard howling shepherds? Where is my flock gone? Where is my paycheck gone? We've heard all these kind of things uh, over the last few years. For their glory is spoiled. The voice of the roaring of young lions for the pride of Jordan is spoiled. Thus says the Lord my God feed the flock of the slaughter. I think this has a certain duality because we, are we not a part of the flock of the spiritual slaughter that has occurred in the greater church of God today? We had to flee for our spiritual lives over a period of time. There's a key right there you might pick up on, we'll mention it later on, is that we didn't just suddenly see somebody actually pick a pig up and put it on the altar in Pasadena and say, Uh, that must be Antiochus and we all fled out of there in one swell poop didn't happen that way did it no we began to recognize pieces of pig on the altar as they put different false doctrines on there and over a period of time we came out so it was a phasing and we have been a part of the flock of the slaughter have the ministers all been that concerned about us did we have to come out on our own and find our own way to good grazing and good water? Or did the shepherds say, oh, that's abominable, and walk out and leave their paychecks? No, most of them stayed there to their great, or to God's great dismay and frustration, and they will answer very dearly for that. Read Ezekiel 33 and 34, as we said. Those possessors slay them and hold themselves not guilty. Were we not being spiritually slain on that altar? Were we not being fleeced? Were we not being used as food? They that sell them say, Blessed be the Lord. (laughs) Isn't that what you heard out of Pasadena? Oh, blessed be the Lord. Don't worry about the flock. For I am rich. I've sold them. I've eaten their meat. I've had their flock, their fleeces uh, taken from them. And some of them stay and just keep getting fleeced, don't they? It's also a bit of a Laodicean attitude, I think. For I am rich and increased with uh, wool and and dollars from the sheep. And their own shepherds pity them not. Where should our concern be as shepherds today? With the flock. For I will no more pity the inhabitants of the land, says the Lord, but, lo, I will deliver the the man every one into his neighbor's hand and into the hand of his king. And they shall smite the land, and out of their hand I will not deliver them. So the sheep are going to be slaughtered, disunified, scattered, frustrated. But notice verse 7. And I will feed the flock of slaughter. There comes a point where God is going to take a hand and he is going to feed the flock. All of us who are trying in whatever feeble way now to feed the flock feel very frustrated and discouraged and yet here is great hope that God himself will take a hand. Even you, O poor of the flock, and I took to me two staves, the one I called beauty, the other I called bands, That's, uh, and I fed the flock. So he's going to take these two staves and feed the flock. Uh, the King James is very poorly translated here. These words should be translated for beauty, grace, and for bands, unity that's what was taken away we came out from under the grace of God Zechariah 1 talks about where God said I was a little displeased and then the heathen came in and tore the church apart with false doctrine and I became very displeased so the grace the unmerited pardon that is and the loving acceptance of God was destroyed along with the unity of the brethren and we began to fight and bite and Hurt one another and put each other down and try to say who is the best. We should not let ourselves get into that. Now he takes these two and says, "I'll feed the flock." But then he shows down here a little lower that he is going to break duty and bands. We've already discussed that. Uh, Zechariah, who is acting this out, had to take the staves before they could be broken. In other words, but and God says that he will use these to feed the flock but meantime the unity and the grace has to be broken so that's kind of the timeline as we go through chapter 11 here Uh, even though that unity and grace is broken he will use these two ultimately to feed the flock of the slaughter and he says I fed the flock with them Uh, now uh, verse 8 three shepherds also I cut off in one month and my soul loathed them and their soul also abhorred me Uh, most of the translations indicate that these three shepherds are either dismissed in your New King James or uh, fired um, cut off not necessarily killed but I thought an interesting comment was made in the Amplified uh, translation he defines the three shepherds as the civil authorities the priests and the prophets in other words all those who have had authority over us that, that authority will be broken. So not just three shepherds, perhaps, three individual men who are fired as a result of teaching the flock wrong, but that God is going to get rid of the priesthood, he's going to get rid of the prophets, and he's going to get rid of the civil authorities that have any authority over us. Well, what does that indicate to you? That indicates to you you're going to be taken out of this world to a place of safety where those people cannot reach you. They will no longer have authority over your lives except those whom Christ appoints. And who, as he said, he will appoint? Two. One of which is the leader, which we shall see. Then said I, I will not feed you. That that dies, let it die. And that that is to be cut off, let it be cut off. And let the rest eat every one the flesh of another. So he's going to cut these civil authorities off. Some people are going to be left behind, aren't they? Some will be taken out and fed by these, but some are going to be left behind, and he says, let that which dies die. The prophets and the priests are, I will no longer work through. I will not give them my spirit. We're going to see that back here. They won't have it, and you go to them, and they won't have an answer from God because his spirit is withdrawn as far as any leadership capacity is concerned. They'll be just like everyone else, except under greater indictment from God. And I took my staff, even beauty, and cut it asunder that I might break my covenant which I had made with all the people. Did he not do that, brethren? Wasn't it pretty well broken when we came out of worldwide? We were not following, we were letting ourselves be the to sleep doctrinally and departing from God's covenant, which we had said we would obey when we were baptized and back in Egypt. So God broke the grace and became angry with us. And it was broken in that day, and so the poor of the flock that waited upon me knew that it was the word of the Lord. And we finally began, the, the, the poor of the flock, the ones that were watching, the ones that were concerned, realized that it was of God and got out of there. Some stayed, and they're just dying and drying up on the vine, aren't they? and I said to them if you think good give me my price and if not forbear so they wait for my price thirty pieces of silver That's why I again acting this out it's interesting the thirty pieces of silver because here it brings you directly to the price of Christ as we'll see later on uh, beauty and bands here or grace and unity are reflected in the two witnesses Zerubbabel and Joshua and <clears throat> Zerubbabel being a type of Christ this was the price of Christ but it's interesting what God said to do with this price The Lord said to me, Cast it to the potter a goodly price that I was prized out of them, and I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. He put the money right back into the church, right back into the work. Didn't pour it out to live a high lifestyle, but put the value, put the effort, put the energy, put the, the money right back into the church of God. That's what Christ wants to see. Then I cut up under my other staff, even unity, that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. And boy, has that been done. Family against family, brother against brother, uh, father against son, husband against wife. It has occurred. The Lord said to me, Take to you the instruments of a foolish, that is, an impious or a perverse shepherd in strongs, for lo, I will raise up a shepherd in the land which shall not visit those that be cut off, neither shall seek the young one, nor heal that that is broken, nor feed that that stands still, but he shall eat the flesh of the fat and tear their claws in pieces. Woe to the idol or the vain or the of no value shepherd that leaves the flock. The sword shall be upon his arm and upon his right eye. His arm shall be clean, dried right up and his eye shall be utterly darkened. So perhaps someone will try to arise that God has not appointed and will have no success, but God will dry him up. He has appointed grace and unity to feed the flock. And in using those names, he says that which is broken will be rejoined, because he will feed the flock with them. Meantime, we're estranged. Now let's go on to uh, Revelation 11. And we'll begin to put this together a bit. Uh as for the summary that I gave you in the beginning. Chapter 11 of Revelation. There was given me a reed like a rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and then the worship therein. Just, he is beginning to introduce the two witnesses here uh, to us. And what is their first goal? What is their first job? Measure the temple of God, the church, and the altar. Check out the ministry and see if they are doing what they ought to be doing. Because these two are going to be sent with the power and the authority to do something about it, whoever they are. But the court which is about the temple, leave out and measure it not, but is given to the Gentiles. And the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty-two months. So the message isn't really to the Gentiles, is it? Don't measure them. Don't be concerned with them. Be concerned with the church of God. That is the apple of my eye. That's who I'm concerned about. So the witnesses address the church, just as we saw in Zechariah 11. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a twelve hundred and sixty days. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. Well, this refers you back to Zechariah 2 through 5, which we'll go through in a moment, just to tie it together. And they will do miracles. Fire proceeds out of their mouth. It will not rain. They have power to make blood. They can smite the earth with plagues as often as they will. God's people, no matter what debilitated spiritual state they find themselves in, when God reveals these two prophets, They'll have to listen, won't they? They'll have to say, wait a minute now. Seems like I read that back in Revelation somewhere before I forgot the Bible. Maybe it's time to listen. And then God will begin to teach them through those two. We'll see that now as we go on. Is there anything else I wanted to grab here before we uh, we get out of here? I think that's most... Well, let's go to Revelation 14 right quick just for a moment because I want to show you the basic message of these two. Revelation 14 verse 7 uh, you've got the three angels here with a three part message and I don't want to spend a lot of time on it but the first one is fear God and give glory to him isn't that the first thing that needs to be taught as far as the gospel of the kingdom of God is is fear God and give glory to him that's to the church it can be to the rest of the world too they will listen but the church will and uh, this thing will expand. They go to the church, but the world will try to stop them because Satan does not want the church to be fed and taught and brought out of tribulation. The second message is Babylon has fallen, has fallen. The system is going away. Don't listen to it. Don't, uh, and we will find that uh, this system in Isaiah 36 through 38 is going to try to flatter us, as Daniel says, and try to pull us away from God. Hezekiah is used there uh, as, uh, as a type of trying to keep us from doing that. Uh, And the third message is, if any man worships the beast in his image and receives his mark in his forehead or in his hand, will receive the wine of the wrath of God. So fear God and obey him. The beast has fallen because God is sovereign and don't worship the beast. That's a pretty simple message, really. It happens to include the rest of the Bible, But just to boil it down, uh, that's basically what we're talking about. Now let's go back to uh, Zechariah. And I want to turn to the first part of the book this time. And let's pick it up in chapter 2. Because it's the same thing that we addressed in... Revelation 11 then said I verse 2 of chapter 2 where go you and he said to me to measure Jerusalem to see what is the breadth and what is the length thereof Uh, and the angel came and gave a a measure uh, stake a plumb line to this young man and said Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls for the multitude of men and cattle therein God is going to gather the church he's going to gather Jerusalem later on the nation of course but let's speak of the first part of the duality of the church here and I won't keep explaining that Uh, just think church and government of the church when you read these things about Jerusalem Zion and then greater Israel and Jacob and so on Uh, and and as I said there are several subjects that come together so that's why I wanted to explain the SPS and the summary of, of really where I was headed ahead of time for I says the Lord will be to her a wall of fire round about and will be the glory in the midst of her So God promises us he will protect the church and be a wall of fire around her just as he was back in the time of Exodus Ho, ho, come forth and flee from the land of the north, says the Eternal, for I have spread you abroad as the full winds of the heaven, says the Lord, and we are scattered about the earth as a church. But notice this is interesting in verse 7 Deliver thyself, O Zion. Is this feeling about the wings of a great eagle where God would pick us up and take us out? Deliver thyself, Zion that dwell with the daughter of Babylon. Here we are, still in the middle of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after the glory which he has sent me under the nations which spoil you, for he that touches you touches the apple of his eye. I will shake my hand on them, and I'll bring you out. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come, and I will dwell in the midst of you, says the Eternal. There are many, many scriptures, and I don't have time to go into them all, which indicate that Christ might even come there and teach us during that period of time. I don't know that for sure. Uh, he says if he's in the desert, believe it not, he's certainly not coming back to in his second coming. But there's many, there are many precedents in the Bible for when he has come back to the earth to teach someone since he went back to his Father in heaven. He appeared to the apostle several times. He appeared to Paul, took him out in the desert and taught him for three and a half years. So there is precedent for that without him having to come back in his glory, which he will certainly do at the end of this period of time. And many, many scriptures seem to indicate it. Be silent, O all flesh, verse 13, before the Lord, for he is raised up out of his holy habitation. Now, let's get a little bit of the thought of the urgency of this, too, as we go. Psalm 119, 126, I won't turn back to, but essentially it says, It is time to act, O Lord, for they have voided your law. What have we seen happen recently and worldwide, if you've been reading the editorials, The law of God, the old way, everything we believed in the past is null and void, worthless. Psalm 119 seems to indicate that it's time for God to act. I would say within a fairly short period of time after that. With God, a day is a thousand years, so I don't know what short is to him. Uh, A thousand years is a long time to me, and he's talking to us, so I think he means in a fairly short time to us, whatever that means to him. Maybe a moment, a very little while, he says in some cases, when he's talking about this type of thing. Now let's get on very quickly here to Joshua in chapter 3. There was someone who was clothed in filthy garments, a brand plucked out of the fire. God cleaned him up and said, Diligently obey me and walk in my ways, verse 7, and uh, you will be a part of my kingdom. But now he says, Here now, Joshua, the high priest, you and your fellows that sit before you, for they are men wondered at, or men of signs and wonders, For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. There are several things I want to point out here. First of all, is that the two witnesses are not going to be off on their own entirely. Joshua here has fellows or a backup and support system, obviously mentioned, men of signs and wonders who work with him to do the job. These men are going to be teaching the church, preaching to the church, once it is in captivity or once the tribulation starts, they will go because they don't even appear on the scene until the tribulation starts and then God says they will preach to the church. And I think we will see that they will have an opportunity to take people out of the tribulation in a flight that occurs a little later. We haven't gotten to the flight yet. We'll get there shortly. But I want to see some things here first. He says, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. Then we'll go over to chapter 4 and we'll find that the branch is the rubber bell. So... Usually when we see the branch in Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, we might happen to have the branch of, of, uh, of the Father. But this Zerubbabel is a type of Christ, and in this duality of prophecy speaking to the church, Christ works through Zerubbabel who is a type of himself, and this type also becomes a form of branch. And didn't we, read, didn't we see in, our other, uh, in the other sermon from Haggai, that God is going to choose a shoot out of, or a branch out of, the greater church of God, the worldwide that has gone astray now, and use them. And that is where this shoot or this branch will come up. So he says to Joshua, who is one of the two, that he would reveal also the branch. God would do the revealing. But we don't know who these people are, and I'm not even going to begin to speculate on that, but God is going to bring them up in his own time and in his own way. Uh, for behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua upon one stone shall be seven eyes. So here's a stone laid before him with seven eyes. What does the stone represent? Well, Christ is the cornerstone of the temple. And if you go back to Revelation 1, 2, 3, you will find there, if you chase this out, and I don't have time to do it right now, the seven eyes are equal to the seven spirits of the seven churches. And he sets before Joshua all seven churches. God intended the church to come apart at this stage of the game. He's turning the tape over. I'll pause just a moment there. Hit just right. God intended it to come apart. He intended all seven churches to exist at the end time. He didn't intend the arguing and the fighting and the bickering that we have done, but He intended the separation. Now, back in the early New Testament church, you had all seven churches there in the mail route, but they were under one head in Jerusalem. They weren't independent separate organizations who would not listen to one head. And when they didn't listen to one head, they had confusion and had to have conferences in Jerusalem to solve it. So what God is going to do is he's going to split it apart, he's going to test attitudes, and then bring it back together under one head. And that head is going to be... uh, the rubber bell who then is uh, assisted by Joshua. Now let's see that here in chapter 4. He has the uh, candlestick all of gold with a bowl on top of it and there's seven lamps there on and seven pipes to the seven lamps. Actually, if you look this up and check the original you'll find there are probably 49 tubes here seven from the, from the bowl down to each of the churches and two olive trees by it. So all seven churches are represented here, and then it it talks about... Well, let's go ahead and go through a little bit, because he says to a rebel who is just a man here. He's a type of Christ, but just a man. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So always remember that God is the one who's doing this through this individual. Who are you, O great mountain? Before the rebel you shall become a plain... And he shall bring forth the headstone there with shouting, crying, grace, grace to it. You can go back to Isaiah 40 and verse 4, and it says there, and we've always equated this with Christ, that the mountains would be laid low, the crooked made straight. And here he says to Zerubbabel, who is a type of himself, before you they will become a plain. The nations will be knocked down. He will give them foreheads of flint, and they cannot stand before this one that Christ appoints. What power is going to be given? must be in the hands of someone who is very, very converted. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hand shall also finish it, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. So the primary job given to Zerubbabel here is to finish the temple, isn't it? To finish the church. All seven of the churches, as we shall see here in just a few verses. For who has despised the day of small things? This starts out small. One man joined by another man as his assistant. And then it grows to encompass the entire church. For they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel, and with those seven, they are the eyes of the Lord, which run to and fro through the whole earth. You can tie this all together in your own Bible study and see that it's talking about the churches, and we'll see that here in the next couple of verses. Then answered I and said to him, What are these two olive trees? And I answered again and said to him, What be these two olive branches which through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves? And he answered me and said, Know you not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. And he said, These are the two sons of oil, or the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. So this bowl represents the Spirit of God. And these two stand beside it and the oil comes down through those tubes to those two or from God and then out to the seven churches brethren it will be the only game in town there will be no other way to get to God except through those two specifically that one there cannot be unity until you have one shepherd one leader that everyone must look to and that's what God is going to do. All seven churches will have to look there. Why? Because their own shepherds will have been cut off, as we saw in Zechariah 11. They won't have the Spirit of God. They won't understand anymore. They won't know have any word of prophecy. They won't have any sure word of the, of the law. They won't be able to advise people, because their people will be in tribulation. They will be fleeing and persecuted, and uh, uh, the beast power will be breathing down their neck. God is going to use drastic measures to bring these little groups independence together if they will not listen to these two they will die it's just that simple you have to have unanimity and doctrine and grace (coughs) excuse me and well being in order to be there so that's why it says measure Jerusalem measure the altar see if they measure up if they don't measure up don't take them out you see, the tribulation isn't going to begin with 43,000 hydrogen bombs going off. If it would, there would be no flesh saved alive. This is a thing that's going to start slowly and build and build and build and build as the beast continues to put pressure toward world rule and domination. The beast and the false prophet and all of their allies. I don't know how dramatically it will begin. But it will not begin in such a dramatic fashion there's no food left and there's no water left and everybody's uh, radiated to the point they're going to die within a month this thing has to last three and a half years so it has to start out slowly and we'll get to a little bit of the time element here and, and how it works out in a moment so I know I'm leaving I'm some big questions in your minds as we move on here but I've got a lot of area to cover and I can't cover it all in three words and that's the way you have to understand these prophecies as well it had to be written down And though you may have a six-ring circus going with this, 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 and this happening simultaneously. If you're an author like John or Isaiah, or Zechariah there, and trying to explain Zechariah 11, you have to sort of write it down one thing at a time. You can't write it all in one sentence at once. So we have to understand that there are flashbacks, we have to understand that you read ahead and then the story will come back and the story will go forward like you have the insets in Revelation, because... Can you imagine trying to write down what John was seeing there with all these helicopters and airplanes and warriors going back and forth and two witnesses preaching here and seven churches over there, and he's trying to write all this down? Of everything that's happening across the face of the entire earth? He had to have some insights. He had to have flashbacks. And that's what you'll see in all these prophecies. It's just hard to say it all at once. It'd be nice if we just put a big picture up here and show it all to you and then we'd all have to pick ourselves up off the floor after we got done being unsainted instead of stoning for 21 days like Daniel did and the days of 11 Dead would be over and that would kicked out of the room and drug off. So we have to be limited to what a human voice and, uh, and what the prophets were able to write down in sequence are able to do. But so let's try to get a picture here. Now, where do I want to go next? I don't know whether I have time. Okay, Uh, we've covered that a little bit. I I want to stop in Zechariah there, but I want to show you uh, more evidence that this is not just to a a group of people out there, but to all seven churches that he is addressing. Isaiah 4.1 uh, is really good on that. While I'm turning there, I want to go back to... uh, Well, I will turn back there, too, in a minute. Let's go to Isaiah 4, 1 first. And in that day, seven women shall take hold of one man. So seven churches take hold of one shepherd, because the others are in emasculated. We will eat our own bread and wear our own apparel, and let us be called by your name to take away our reproach. We're out here wandering around, and we don't have a shepherd. And that day shall the branch... Okay... Did we read that there in uh, Zechariah 3? Of the Lord be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. Those that are escaped, the branch will be comely before. And it shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion, not that escaped, but that is left there, and he that remains in Jerusalem shall be called holy, even every one that is written among the living in Jerusalem. Many dead, but some are living. We may be talking physically as well as spiritually dead here. Some in Jerusalem will be spiritually basically dead, but some will be alive and will remain, and they need to be taught. Well, what's going to happen? When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning... He judged they should stay in there. He judged they should go through a certain amount of the burning of the tribulation that they might be cleansed and washed. Some were taken out. Some remained. And the Lord will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night. There it takes us back to Exodus and up forward to Zechariah, which we read, for upon all the glory shall be a defense and there shall be a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime from the heat and for a place of refuge, and for a covert from storm and from rain. So God is going to straighten those people out and give them safety as well, it would appear. I'm stating these things fairly dogmatically. Remember, I'm drawing a picture, I'm trying to tie some scriptures together and form something for you to show you what God may be doing. I'm not sure I have it all right. There again. But it sure leaps out at you when you begin to understand a few of these keys. Exodus 1. Here is where uh, Moses went into the land of Midian as he was being prepared to take uh, Israel out to a place of safety. Picking it up in verse 16. (coughs) Uh, Let's don't read all that. I'll I'll just recount the story to you. Wait a minute. I didn't go to the right place. Um, Or did I? No, I didn't. Oh, here we are. Okay. Yeah, I was just looking and I was looking I wanted chapter two. That's the problem. Chapter two. Moses said from the face of Pharaoh in verse sixteen, now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water, water equaling the Holy Spirit. And Pharaoh crowds to water their father's flock. And the shepherds came and drove them away. Then Moses stood up and helped them water their flock. Here you have one shepherd or one man feeding all seven of the flock. I mean the the women coming I'll get this straight in a minute. you got all seven of the women coming to one man, just like Isaiah 4, one. How is it you come so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds, and also drew water enough for us, and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, And where is he? Why is it that you left the man? When you find the one that is being selected by God to feed all seven churches, don't leave him. Go on. Seven women take hold of one man. As we saw in Zechariah, all seven churches are fed by the two witnesses. That is the source of the Holy Spirit. I've added it with Matthew 25, where all others went to sleep. And then a cry was made, and we woke up and said, Go buy oil for them that sell when it comes to this point brethren there is only one place to go one source how long will that source exist I don't know it will go for a period of time into the tribulation and then at some point the tribulation will become so violent that that opportunity will cease it behooves us to repent now and go out on the first flight and not wait for the gathering of the second. And we haven't even proved that yet, have we? All right. I want to skip over uh, one point here. Well, maybe just quickly. Someone wrote a letter to headquarters the other day, and i it was kind of interesting. We'd never heard of the man. Uh, but he said uh, that the two witnesses were a man and a woman. And I wrestled with that one a little while. I thought, thought, uh, now, come on. It says two prophets, not a prophet and a prophetess and the job description in Zechariah obviously is of the high priest would have been, which would have been a man and the governor of Judah which would be a man but so you have a woman in there <coughs> well I figured it out one of the women one of the two witnesses is a woman brethren believe that one alright let's look at it very quickly uh, what we have is a problem that has always existed among man's governments is ch- state and church cannot get together you don't seem to have unity there uh, look at the examples in the Bible of Moses and Aaron or Moses and Elijah and Malachi you have Moses representing states the laws <coughs> and Elijah or Aaron representing the priesthood what about David and Zadok you got the kingly line you got the priest line with Zadok what about Christ in the church you got the, the groom and you got the bride here you have uh, what are we, are we going to be kings and priests you women are going to be kings and priests not queens and priestesses uh, Zerubbabel and Joshua. One represents the state, Zerubbabel, Jesus Christ. The other represents, he was the high priest. He represents the priesthood. <coughs> so any of you who might be applying for the job of uh, Joshua, you've got to be a woman. Uh, let's put it this way. The woman represents the churches. See? as the priesthood because Christ is the masculine side of this and is representing uh, his father and and the groom. So, even though uh, Joshua, one of the two witnesses, will be a man, he will represent the church, which is a woman. That is, as the high priest of the church. So I kind of fit it in. Don't know what it's worth. But it is interesting, is it not, that Christ turned the priesthood over from Levi to Judah because Christ was of Judah. So he changed the priesthood. Does it not also make sense, and I don't have time to look up a lot of scriptures to prove it, but there are some that are there, that perhaps he is also turning over the kingship from the throne in Britain to a spiritual fulfillment in David. And perhaps Herbert Armstrong was the first fulfillment of David in this early in this end time because he was the king over or the ruler over or the head of or the leader of the entire church one shepherd and then duty or, or, or uh, grace and unity were broken and then you had all kinds of shepherds most of them not too whippy and then it is turned to one again and this rebel, since he is a type of Christ probably also is a type of David and that's how they come under one shepherd as per Ezekiel 34 and it shows very clearly that this is the only place you can go. Now let's go to Revelation 12 and substantiate two flights, lest you fly out of here saying he couldn't prove that. <coughs> Revelation 12. Now this chapter was <coughs> generally taken throughout the history of this era of God's church to indicate that there was one flight which occurred back in the Middle Ages, either at the time of Justinian or wherever you want to date it, and it ended sometime during the Middle Ages, 1260 years later a day of the year. Uh, I'm beginning to wonder <coughs> about that. <coughs> a little drink of water here. Perhaps that is true, but in that case it would only be a type because I think we can substantiate here and show scripturally so that the Bible does not contradict itself that there are two flights. Mentioned in Revelation 12. Uh, she brought forth a man-child, speaking of Christ, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. That's in Verse 5. <coughs> And her child was caught up into God, into his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three square days. Does it say anything about hastening or hurrying? Just as the woman fled into the wilderness, where there's a place prepared for her. Then there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, the dragon fought in his angels, and prevailed not, and, and Satan, who accused the brethren, was cast down, and then you have down here in verse 14, another flight. The woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. And then we all know the story about how the flood came and uh, helped the woman. The earth helped the woman carry away the flood of the army, that is. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went back to make war with the woman of the her seed. That is... Uh, uh, in the tribulation apparently which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ so they are true Christians who have the testimony of God they have the laws and yet they're left in the tribulation the remnant left behind but this one is under great urgency isn't it? we've always said the one is in the middle ages and the one at the end is down at the verse 16 and 17 and we tie that with Matthew 24 where it says that if you be in Judea when this flight comes hurry off the rope, for don't go back down <laughs> Get your toes, but scram. I mean now. Now how does that square with some other scriptures? Uh, we didn't see a great deal of imparity, uh, imperative <coughs> uh, urgency there in Zechariah one or two, I guess it was. Let's go back to isaiah fifty two. we'll see quite a bit in the book of, in uh, in isaiah fifty two let's pick up the context beginning in the verse chapter, uh, verse 1 awake awake put on your strength O Zion put on your beautiful garments okay here's the message for the end prepare yourself get ready put on your beautiful wedding garments O Jerusalem the holy city for henceforth there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean that would seem to indicate by the way that Jerusalem uh, also is part of the bride I would think shake yourself from the dust arise Sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the hands of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. Were we not captive and worldwide and had to shake ourselves loose and come out of there? For thus says the Lord, you have sold yourselves for naught, and you shall be redeemed without money. You won't have to have money to come to me now. Um, boy, you were bought and sold by those people who had the, the rule over you, though. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down a full time into Egypt to sojourn there, and the, and the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. excuse me let's pick it down uh, let's go down to verse 7 how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that brings good tidings that publishes peace now we're going to see that this is probably speaking of one of the two witnesses here and it it only speaks of one so that would be Zerubbabel Uh, that brings good tidings of good that publishes salvation that says to Zion your God reigns and then it switches to two Your watchmen shall lift up the voice, with the voice together shall they sing, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring back Zion. When God begins to bring Zion back together. Break forth into joy. Sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem. This is for you and me. This is for the church of God. Break forth and sing because God is beginning to bring us back. For the Lord has comforted his people, he has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. The two witnesses are going to go to the entire world. The whole world is going to see this beginning of salvation as they pull these people away from the world and to God. Depart you, depart you, go you up from thence. Touch no unclean thing, go you out of the midst of her... Be you clean that bear the vessels of the eternal. we got to get away from this Babylonian system. Come out from her, my people. Uh, Revelation 18.4 For so you shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight. Now, that square with Matthew 24, where it says, don't even come off the house and get your towel. Go! And here it says, don't go by haste. Don't go by flight. For the Lord God will go before you and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. So this seems to equate to me the first flight we talked about in Revelation 12 where there doesn't seem to be as great an urgency. Sure, flee. I mean, get out of there. But it says not by haste. And this is tied together with the two witnesses who will be those who escort you out. So the first time that a bunch of people go out it is not by haste or by flight Apparently. And you can see this through the different flights in the Bible. John had a series on the, on the place of safety a while back and discussed some of these things. Noah wasn't in that great big, big hurry. 120 years to build it and 7 days to sit in it before they left. A lot, on the other hand, was in a big hurry. Get them out of there. I'm going to destroy this place. So there are lots of different flights mentioned in the Bible, some with haste, some without haste. But this one says to go out and not be in haste. Behold, my servant shall be prudently and he shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Chapter 53, Who has believed, I report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Who's going to believe this? Only those who have the Spirit of God and, and understand that we have to be taken out and protected. So I don't see any way to uh, to put this together if there's only one flight. One is by haste, one is not. <coughs> and there are many other scriptures which will indicate this. Look at how they came out of this, out of Pelop an angel perhaps said on the day of Pentecost, <clears throat> get out of here, get the hints, or whatever the exact words were. And they spent about a year getting out of there and going to Pella. There wasn't any great hurry in that particular flight. What about when we came out of the Worldwide Church of God? This is an end-time uh, flight that occurred spiritually where we had to flee for our spiritual lives. Did we come out all at once, like I described earlier in the sermon? No. It was over a period of time as each of us woke up and came out of there. There was time, in other words, and there still may be a little time for some to wake up and come out. So it didn't happen all at once. Will the physical flight to a place of safety also happen all at once? I don't think so, based on some of these scriptures. There's an interesting thing to consider here as well. Uh, Richard brought this up the other day because he and I had been talking about, what does this mean? And it's always been a puzzle to me. Why does it say to the one 1260 days? Why does it say the one forty-two months in the next chapter there about Babylon uh, having holding sway for 42 months? And then you get down to the last slide in Revelation 12, and it talks about time, times, and half a time, or three and a half years. Why did he use all those different things? Why didn't he just say 1,260 days all the way through? Well, here was Richard's theory, and I'll blame it on him. Um, but it made sense to me, too. The 1,260 is very specific, isn't it? If someone says, I'll meet you here in 1,260 days, you can whip out your calendar, you can count off 1,260 days, you don't know when to be here. When he says, I'll meet you in 42 months, there could be some variation there, couldn't there? Months don't always have the same amount of days. The system is messed up now to the point where we've got a 365-and-a-quarter-day year instead of a 360-day year as it used to be. So you have to calculate the month. Some have 29, some have 30, some have 31, and some years February has 28, sometimes 29 in a leap year. So when you say 42 months, you've got some variation there that you could deal with, a little less or a little more. When you say three and a half years, you've got a whole lot of leeway to deal with, time, times, and half a time, because you might have an intercalary year there, whether it's 360 to 365 is straightened out, a, an extra month in there to make the calendar stay on course after the earth was locked off its axis a little bit and made the year the longer. So there's a certain amount of variation. What does that translate to? What does it mean? Well, it means that the two witnesses are going to proclaim the gospel 1260 specific days because it says 1260 there in, in uh, Revelation 11. Uh, the first flight is 1260 days in a place of safety. But if these others come in later... They may not be there specifically 1,260 days. They may be there a month shorter or two months shorter. And I think the uh, variance, as Richard explained, it could come out as much as three months in three and a half years based on the calendar calculation. So there may be a period of time after the first flight occurs that the two witnesses are raised up and they begin to proclaim the gospel of God and they begin to do some dramatic things and the rest of the people of God and worldwide or wherever they might happen to be and these other groups are independent will finally see someone they can look to and say, ah, there's where God is working. Right there. Then they would come in and say, I will follow you. One shepherd, see? It all begins to come together and God begins to unite all the churches together under one head. Does Christ want to come back to this earth and see his bride scattered all over the face of the earth? No way! He's going to bring us back together. Those of us who will repent soon enough will be taken to a place of safety in a second flight, or maybe over a period of time. I don't know. Several of these, in other words. Until it just gets so violent that you can't bring them out anymore, and they just haven't repented, and they have to go through it and die in order to be saved. God is not coming back to a bifurcated and splintered church. <coughs> back to unity. His bridegroom will be unified. I mean, his bridegroom. I'm uh, making my flu still. His bride will be unified. Now, where am I? Oh, I'm about to run out of time. I still have uh, lots to go here. Uh, Jeremiah 3. <clears throat> I don't want to get into Jeremiah very much, but he talks about an estrangement and a broken covenant. And yet he says, and this is 314 I won't turn there but he says I will draw one of a city and two of a family so he's going to start drawing them from all over and preparing to bring them out and take them to Zion Jeremiah 4 5 through 6 he says stay not flee the destroyer is on the way okay we flee oh I say we I hope I'm one of them that goes early Uh, we flee before the destroyer comes so there is not as great a haste involved there later on Uh, it it shows that the destroyer is there (laughs) and destruction is coming now let's go through the book of Isaiah I want to go through some scriptures (laughs) very rapidly here, excuse me Uh, let's pick up the context a little bit because the book of Isaiah has a great deal to say about a place of safety We've gone to chapter 16 and two or three of the uh, more obvious places in the past. But if you start going through Isaiah, you will find it everywhere. And when you understand the keys that we talked about today, you'll find it... Well, I already said everywhere. What I go next? Anyway, <clears throat> Isaiah, it talks about a very small remnant here in verse 9 of chapter 1. And <clears throat> verse 27... Zion shall be redeemed with judgment and her converts with righteousness and he gets them to chapter 2 and says in verse 10 enter into the rock and hide you in the dust for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty so this talks about mountains and deserts and refuge enter in it also tells the world to go crawl in the holes of the rocks, you know and that's also mentioned in the book of Revelation so this is obviously talking about the end time, the tribulation and it's time to enter into the rock and flee uh, let's see. I'm, I'm trying to pick down through here now. <coughs> it's interesting in chapter 3, verse 7, that one will not want to be a ruler of the people. Uh, things will have degenerated so much, perhaps in the church here now, that no one's going to want to be the leader anymore. And you find toward the end of the millennium, I mean toward the end of the, this time in the beginning of the millennium, everyone will say, well, I don't want to be a Jew. I don't want to be a leader. I'm a farmer. And we've gotten to the place that the men don't want to rule. The, the nation declares their sin at Sodom, they hide it not. Verse 9, as for my children, as for my people, children of their oppressors, and women rule over them. The men are not leading anymore. The churches rule over them as well. And it shows that the, the daughters of Zion, or in this case, spiritually speaking, the churches, not individuals necessarily, have their minds more on numbers. They have their minds more on money. They have their minds more on offices. They have their minds more on wool for their backs and, uh, and sheep meat for their tummies. On outward appearances of numbers and look how big we are and look what we're doing and what a great work we're going to have here. They're not concentrating on holiness and on righteousness. Outward appearance. And God says he is going to take them right into tribulation for that attitude. And it says the men will die too in verse 25, not just the women or the church, but the men as well, because they wouldn't lead the church in the right way. And her gates shall lament and mourn, and she being desolate shall sit upon the ground. And then it says about the seven women that will take care of hold of one man, and we've already read chapter 4, so I won't go into that anymore. But notice verse chapter 4, so I, I did emphasize that those who remain in Jerusalem Isaiah 8 uh, verse 7 let's pick it up this is very interesting because here it says uh, verse 9 associate yourselves O you people and you shall be broken in pieces and give ear all of you far countries gird yourselves and you shall be broken in pieces associate yourselves together in a confederacy in other words put all their might together join your forces become allies and come up to fight me God is speaking and you shall be broken in pieces. Take counsel together, and it shall come to naught. Speak the word, and shall not stand, for God is with us. Now, maybe this is Isaiah saying this, but he's, he's speaking from God. For the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand, and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, Say you not a confederacy, to all them to whom this people shall stay a confederacy. Neither fear you their fear, nor be afraid. Obviously, there is an association. Isaiah challenged them to come and have an association or a confederacy or a conspiracy together against Jacob and against the church. And God says, Don't worry about it. Don't spend a lot of time, brethren, worrying about the conspiracy that we see around us. Now, we'll preach about it some. We'll talk about it some because it's there. But don't spend a great deal of time worrying about it. Don't fear it. What can they do to you? Tell the body? big deal it's me to stand here and say that <coughs> but let's put this in perspective sanctify the Lord of hosts himself and let him be your fear and let him be your dread and he shall be a far sanctuary or a place of refuge for you but for a stone of stumbling and for a walk of offense to both the houses of Israel speaking of the nation here for a gin and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem Bind up the testimony. fear the law among my disciples. Look to the law of God. Look to God himself. God has given people to be signs and wonders for you and Israel from the Lord of hosts which dwells in Mount Zion. And don't look to those who have familiar spirits or worry about guys that are predicting earthquakes on the west coast because God can protect you. He will take us out when he sees fit. He will protect us. The law and the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. The Pope is going to do fantastic miracles, just as Pharaoh's uh, soothsayers did. Some will be led astray by that and deceived, even the very elect if it were possible. God says if we look to him and to this word, to this doctrine, who's going to be teaching it? The witnesses at that point, that's where to look. And then the signs and wonders you see there will be true signs and wonders. Now let's go on. uh, Now that we've got the conspiracy out of our hair and don't have to worry about it anymore. Not that we shouldn't watch the signs and not that there isn't one. But let's not fear it, brethren. Let's fear God, because He is our safety. He is our refuge. Chapter 16, I won't go through because every sermon on the place of safety uh, talks about Isaiah 16. you can read it yourself, and it talks there about uh, Edom protecting us. but I want to hit a few more things. Uh, chapter 26, uh, chapter 26 verse 17. Like as a woman with child who draws near the time of her delivery is in pain and cries out in her pangs, so have we been in your sight, O Lord. We have been with child, we have been in pain, we, are, we, were, we have, as it were, brought forth wind. We just can't seem to, to get this done, can we? And it's a frustration to us. We want it to move forward. We have not brought any deliverance from the earth, neither have the inhabitants of the world fallen. You know, the, the, the wars haven't started. What's going on? Your dead men shall live together with my dead body. Shall they arise, awake, and see you that dwell in dust? For your dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Come, my people, enter you into your chambers, and shut your doors about you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is passed, or overpassed, or gone over you. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. So we look around and see nobody's dead and God says don't no about it. Go to your chamber, shut your door. Don't run in there, you know, trying to wipe somebody off from behind you who's trying to stab you with a sword. Go in your chamber, shut your door, and then I will arise and I will punish the nations. Then the dead will pile up. So here again, you don't have that great hurry that we would read in Matthew 24. And I've already tied in Psalm 119, 126, where he said they've voided the law. It's time to act. Now let's go to 33, chapter 33, Uh, verse 14. There's a little warning here. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has surprised the hypocrites. So there will be some in the church who are hypocritical. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? That wall of fire that was be placed around us, as Zechariah said. Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? He that walks righteously and speaks uprightly, and he that despises the gain of oppressions, that shakes his hands from holding of bribes, that stops his ears from hearing of blood and shuts his eyes from seeing evil. Do we monitor what we watch on television and movies? Do we shut our eyes from seeing evil? Do we stop our ears from hearing of blood? Or do action movies really turn us on? Where the deeper the bodies are, the better it is. Is that what this is talking about? I don't know. You judge that. But those who stop their ears and shut their eyes shall dwell on high. His place of defense shall be the munitions of rocks bread shall be given him his water shall be sure your eyes shall see the king in his beauty another indication Christ might be there but those who despise the evil who hate the evil who try to keep it away who depart out of Babylon who do not partake of this society will be taken out of Babylon and those who want to be a part of it will be left behind and that's what these days are all about brethren we have to come out of her be cleansed be pure, be holy before God. Uh, chapter 36, 37, 38, uh, I don't know, but I, I don't really have time to go into that. But the Assyrian tries to flatter us, and, uh, and God's recommendation is don't listen to the Assyrian. He says he's going to give you wonderful things. This new world order is going to provide food and clothing and shelter and medical care for Everyone. Don't you listen because Ezekiel 5 says they're going to kill 90% of us. And then they're going to take some more hair out and throw them in there. Not even 90%, not even 10% will be saved. Don't listen to them. No matter what they say about how wonderful this new world way is going to be, it isn't going to happen. These people do intend to kill 90% of the people on the face of the earth. And when it is announced, they applaud chapter uh, God says answer him not when he tells you this in uh, chapter 36, 21 I think it is or 37 but he says in chapter 37 verse 32 that God would deliver from the Assyrian well someone out before the Assyrian came now chapter 40 uh, I'm getting close to the close here I hope John doesn't pull the plug on me back there I did go under time here once chapter 40 verse one, <coughs> let's, let's pick it up in verse 3 the voice of him that cries in the world that prepare you the way of the Lord and make straight in the desert a highway for our God didn't we read that in Zechariah 4 about the rebel belt? I guess I already referred to it but he is going to straighten things out and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together so this is how to expand to around the world where you're going to have to tell the nations of this world Jesus Christ is coming and if you don't repent you will die so the message will expand to the nations beyond the church. Verse 9 O oh, Zion that brings good tidings, get you up into the high mountain, O Jerusalem that bring good tidings. Lift up your voice with strength, lift it up, and be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. Some very comforting, beautiful words in Isaiah. Chapter 42, verse 11 says, Sing from the mountains. Uh, let the inhabitants of the rock sing. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Eternal and declare His praise in the islands. Now how are you going to stand on the mountains and perhaps teach us some other place God pictures, or, or uh, uh, selects, and sing to the Isles, the Islands of Britain? Looks to me like the two witnesses will come back and forth to the nations of this world and to the islands from the place of safety. If Christ is there, perhaps he will give them their daily uh, flight plans as to where to go and where to preach and what to say. I don't know. That's just a thought. Chapter 56, verse 8. Uh, kind of helps my little theory here. Uh, chapter 56, verse 8. The Lord which gathers the outcasts of Israel says, Now, he's gathered the outcasts of Israel, right? He says, Yet will I gather others to him beside those that are gathered to him. So apparently some are gathered and taken out, and then some more are gathered that weren't gathered and then taken out. That would indicate to me that, uh, that there are the two flights there in Revelation 12. Uh, Let's see. Let's go to 66 very quickly now. We're getting close to the end of this book. Only 66 chapters here. Verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord. You that tremble at his word, your brethren that hated you, that cast you out for my name's sake, have we heard this before somewhere? Said, let the Lord be glorified. But he shall appear to your joy, and they shall be ashamed. A voice of noise from the city, a voice from the temple, a voice of the Lord that renders recompense to his enemies. Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she was delivered of a man-child. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day, or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. This is going to happen, brethren. Shall I bring to the birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I cause to bring forth and shut the womb, says your God? Rejoice you with Jerusalem and be glad with her, all you that love her. Not you who despised her and trumped her into the mud and spoiled her feed, but you that love her rejoice with her. Those who repent and turn to God and we can have unity and closeness together again rejoicing with her, all you that mourn for her. Now I want to close this Back in Psalms, many of the Psalms are prophetic because Mrs. Armstrong quoted a psalm back here over and over, one which we ourselves have quoted many times, I think, recently. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity in Psalm 133.1. But notice the context. He's talking about Zion here in chapter 132. If your children will keep my covenant and my testimony that I shall teach them, their children also shall sit upon your throne forevermore. So coming together, unified, sitting on the throne of God forevermore. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. Not like it is now. But straightened out. brought together. This is my rest forever. Is it restful now? No, it isn't. For here will I dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Remember that there, the poor, of the flock that they trampled in Zechariah 11? There will I make the horn of David to bud. I have ordained a lamp for mine anointed. His enemies will I clothe with shame, but upon himself shall his crown flourish. So here's the context, right at the end. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Whether it be in a place of safety as they are brought together with one mind, one spirit, one attitude. If you do not have the attitude that God is putting out through the oil of God, through the witnesses, especially through the bell, you won't be there because God is not going to allow a diversity of doctrine, a diversity of opinion, you will either see it the way God is teaching it through those poor individuals or you just won't be taken out. You'll be left and you will have to repent under great duress and even threat of your very life, and probably will die because the tribulation is going to increase and increase until no flesh would be saved alive and Satan is going specifically after those who have the testimony of God and his laws as, as Revelation 12 at the end points out as the Jew of Hermon and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion but there the Lord commanded the blessing even life forevermore those who will be united those who will come together with the same spirit and attitude will be there with life forevermore Behold, bless you the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, which by night stand in the house of the Lord. What does that mean? You stand watch. Those who are watching and praying always that they be delivered from these things. Not those who just go to sleep, but those who stand watch. What does he say? A fire is made at midnight. The time is near. Stand watch. Be ready. Watch what's going on. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the eternal. Here's the way we do this. Get our minds off these things that are going on in the world other than watching them and see how they're coming together. But let's focus our attention on Jesus Christ upon those whom he brings out ultimately. If we're one of those that happens to be left behind, we'd better be nowhere to turn. The Lord that made heaven and earth bless you out of or from Zion. All we've seen here in these scriptures about Zion, I think it's pretty clear where the blessing is going to come from. With that, the transmission is ended.